I'm Teresa Moyer. I'm the associate pastor here at Conshohocka Vineyard Church. And now I put on my other hat, from announcements to sermon. So um, it's the middle of August. You know, the temperature changed this weekend. We were all relaxed about that, right? Finally, the heat wave ended. Oh, my gosh. But um, I started seeing on Facebook so-and-so's first day of school. I'm like, what the? So, you know, as students are getting themselves getting right back to, to school-mindedness, and all my college professor friends are working on their syllabi, it is here that I say, woohoo! I do not have to do any syllabi preparation at the end of August this year. I am so excited. Uh, so lots of transitions going on in our lives, and there's a transition going on here too. We are going to be starting a new sermon series um, called Clicking. There we go. Big ideas from tiny letters. Big ideas from tiny letters. Over the past few months, probably six months or so, we have been doing what we call topical-based sermons, right? We just went through a whole sermon series on spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, did not Sloan knock it out of the park last week with that sermon on, on tongues? I have found myself praying in my gift of tongues more often this week than I have for a long time, so thank you for that. And I wanted to share with you that at least one person received the gift of tongues last week in our prayer time. And um, I wondered if anybody else had. So if you have this week experienced the gift of tongues for the first time, please let either Sloan or me know. We'd love to rejoice with you and pray with you. But it was a very exciting moment to see God move that way. So now we're going to be focusing more on um, what we call exegetical teachings. We're going to be taking the scripture and unpacking it for our community. And today, we're starting this big ideas from little letters. Now, the little letters are 2 John, 3 John, Philemon, and Jude. And then most of them are at the end of the New Testament. These scriptures are really, these chapters are really only about um, between 13 and 25 verses long. It's one chapter for the entire book. They're, they're um, the kind that you could sit down and do in a Bible study. We're going to be looking at 2 John today, and it's only 13 verses. If you came to my house for a small group, we could knock it out in one night. It takes about two minutes to read it. But there are two very big themes in this tiny letter, and combined they make a really big statement for our community and for the church at large historically and our participation in it. So let me just pray one more time because we like to pray here. And Father, I ask for you to have this time. I submit my work to you, my words to you. And I pray that our minds and hearts would now tune in to your spirit to hear from your word the way you want us to, Lord, even more than we already have today. Come by your spirit and do that. In Jesus' name we pray. So scholars are pretty clear that the Apostle John, also known as John the Beloved, John the Evangelist, John the one who put his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper, John who called himself the loved disciple, he knew Jesus very well. And he wrote this letter. He also wrote the Gospel of John and the Book of Revelation. He was very close friends with Jesus. But as we read through this letter today, it's really important to note that he is the last surviving apostle at the time that he's writing this. 
It was written around 100 AD, and it meant that he was in his 90s. Not too many apostles made it to their 90s. Most of them were martyred, killed for their belief in Jesus. And this letter was not written to one church, like Corinthians or Ephesians or other letters. It was a letter written that was circulated around a lot of churches. So I'm going to get it started, and you'll see he calls himself the elder. Well, he should, right? He's the last remaining apostle. And he says, the, the elder, I am sending it to the lady chosen by God and to her children. Now, this has had scholars arguing for, you know, millennia uh, about whether there was an actual lady who had a church meeting in her house and he was writing to her, or if this is the personification of the church, like the bride of Christ, the lady. And most modern scholars believe the second version, that this is written to the church at large. He goes on to say, I love you because of the truth. I'm not the only one who loves you, so does everyone who knows the truth. I love you because of the truth that's alive in us. The truth will be with us forever. Now this is his second letter like this. And in 1 John... He was written, 1 John and 2 John were both written to combat like a, a, a belief system that was going on in the secular world that was starting to press in on the believers of the church in, our, in the church community. Right off the bat, this is still the introduction. Most times these introductions are like, grace and peace to you. I write to you from, you know, but this is like he's jumping in. And he's jumping in with two very big themes. Truth and love. Truth and love. Because what he is saying to this community and to all of us throughout history is these two things, the truth of the gospel and the love of God through us to one another is what keeps the church alive. These two things. He goes to say grace, oh, here, here's the, the typical intro, right? Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. Again, the children now are the metaphoric children of the church, right? All the people who follow. Clearly, some were walking in the truth, and some were not. And this was of great concern to John as he's getting ready to go home to heaven. He's become aware of a dangerous false teaching that was entering popular thinking and creeping its way into the church. Does this sound familiar? I mean, think about the things that your friends say about the gospel. Strange false teachings that are making their way into the church. Things that have been accepted universally by the church throughout the ages are being questioned by Christians today. We're seeing this now. Many are leaving the truth because pressures from secular cultures are making their way into mainstream Christianity. And some people are no longer walking in the truth at all because of these teachings that have crept in. Because Orthodox Christianity and lies cannot live together. They cannot live together. God's truth will remain. It's kind of amazing that we still have Orthodox Christianity today. What I mean by Orthodox here is simply the foundational truths remain true. 
like what we're going to be learning in Alpha. The foundational truths remain true. They don't change. If when you think that even not even a hundred years into the church's life, there are already deceptions creeping into the church. How is it that Christianity has survived over 2,000 years? If within the first, I almost said decade, what is it? Century, thank you. That, that they're, they're experiencing these creepings in. Have you ever thought about how quickly the whole church could disintegrate if folks start holding on to false teachings? I think throughout history, we've seen dangers of this, but the body of Christ is invincible, especially if we commit to love and truth. Now, from the get-go, the enemy's been trying to oppose the gospel, right? We've known this from, from, the, from the Garden of Eden. The enemy has been opposing the gospel. But after Jesus' death, we've got the resistance from the synagogue leaders and the Jewish population who couldn't believe that the gospel was a fulfillment of their scriptures. That's a major opposition. But despite it, the body of Christ thrives. Then there was the resistance from the Romans, which continues for another couple hundred years until Constantine finally says, okay, we're going to call this a legalized religion. And in time, love and truth prevailed, and the church continues. But around this letter's writing, around 100 AD, the Greek teachings that were first utterly rejected by the body of Christ had slowly, slowly started seeping their way into the church. Thank you, Chris. Some people were leaving the fellowship of this church and going off into these false teachings. And the problem was they started believing what they were learning was more spiritual, more elite, more enlightened. And so this movement was the beginnings of what was called Gnosticism. And it's a whole teaching for another day. But essentially, this group of people started to go, you know what, this basic stuff, this main and the plain stuff, we have way more enlightenment from God. And we're going off to discover it. And as they were leaving, they were demonstrating a lack of true love for their community and straying from the truth of the gospel. And the gospel is this, that Jesus was come, born of the Virgin Mary, became man, suffered, died, rose again, ascended into heaven, sent his Holy Spirit. This is the gospel. So that everyone who believed would know God and would never have to suffer eternal death, but would live eternally as God originally designed. So even in his greeting, John is focused on truth and love, love and truth. This is what preserves us as we stay attached to God. Now, by verse 5, he gets into the actual message. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. Of all the things John could stress is important, he chooses this. He brings us back to what we like to call in the vineyard the main and the plain, as our friend Mike Turgiano coined it. The simple practice of loving one another and loving God. At least it sounds simple. But in experience, is it always simple to love one another? You know, have you ever heard the saying, simple isn't always easy? Simple isn't always easy. Sometimes the simplest things can be the most difficult to do. If I gave you all a piece of paper and a pencil and said, draw a, a perfect circle, simple. Not so easy to do. Or if I gave you a dart and a dartboard and said, you know, hit that dartboard with this dart, simple. 
not easy. Loving one another as God calls us to love might seem simple, but in practice, it's really not easy to do, especially if we don't want to be fake, which in our community, we care a lot about. Recently, I was listening to a book on tape, tape. <laughs> Hello, dated myself. Um, I was listening to this audiobook, The Good and Beautiful God by James Brian Smith. Some of you are familiar with this series. And he starts in his introduction in the first chapter talking about this command that God gives us to love one another. And he said, you know, as I was reading it, I realized I really don't always love everyone in my life. He said, sometimes I don't even love my own friends. And I thought, ooh, ouch. If I'm honest, I know that's true for me. Love can be hard, especially in a church community. I said to our small group of young adults, I was like, church is one of the only places in the world where all these different, diverse people who have nothing else in common except they want to know God come together and then we're commanded not suggested or encouraged, we're commanded to love one another as God loves us, to lay our lives down for each other. Simple, but not easy. It can be hard enough to love our own natural families than just God's family. Although some of us, like, the, the verdict is out on which is easier, the, our natural families or our, or our church families, but... We can talk about that at the cafe afterwards. So both John and Jesus knew the importance of this command, to love one another. I believe they knew that the future of the church depended on it, because truth and love and love and truth are what keeps the church healthy. Let's look at the next verse. And this is love, he explains, that what? We walk in obedience to his commands. One of my friends said recently, it's not easy to walk in all of God's commands. I was like, yeah, but he boils it down to this. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. To walk in love. John hasn't forgotten what Jesus told them that last Passover meal before he was arrested. Actually, John wrote the book on it. For real. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, 9 through 14, we see Jesus' words the night before he died. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And I've told you this so that your joy may be complete, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. And here again, my command is this, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. Now, I want to just say what I'm feeling right now out, out in our community. It's really easy to numb out on this. Oh, she's going to talk about loving each other for the rest of this time. It's easy to numb out. It feels like a, a message you've heard a million times. I'm going to ask you to try not to let that happen because I think God has some, some specific things to do in us today. It's important that we practice this so that the civilization of Christianity will continue. This is not just for us. This is for who we are. So important that it was foremost on his mind as he prepares to die. At, at the Last Supper, he doesn't talk about sexual purity. 
He doesn't talk about knowing scriptures, how to spend our money, how to raise our children, how to serve the poor. These are not the things on Jesus' mind as he's going to die, even though he taught on all these things. But this is what we hear a lot in the world is what being a Christian is about. That's not what's on Jesus' mind right now. Under the duress of the opposition he's to face and what he knows the apostles are going to face after he goes, his final word to them is, love each other as I have loved you. There is staying power in this. There is staying power in it. Not easy, but important. And by the time John's getting near the end of his life, he knows this staying power. He knows what, how to rem remind people to press into this especially as they're facing the threat of opposition from friends, family, neighbors, communities, cultures. While I was preparing this sermon, I got a letter from the newly formed director of the, the newly formed Women's Pastors and Leaders Association of the Vineyard USA. Her name is Melanie Forsyth Lee. In it, she was telling of her struggles with unity in their 15-year-old church plant. She writes, 15 years ago, in preparing to plant our church, we came up with a slogan for our new community. It was a simple statement, living together, loving God. And it felt like a most attainable goal. Most people who showed up to our church in the early days fell into three simple categories. Christians from other churches, lapsed Christians who wanted to reconnect with God, and non-believers seeking God. It wasn't hard to live together and love God because we had a common consensus on who God was and what he required of us. There was a commonly understood Christian ethic and interpretation of scripture. She says, fast forward 15 years to today and that idealistic, simplistic view of church feels foreign. Relationships are more fractured than ever. We can't seem to agree on anything anymore. Christians are questioning every commonly held interpretation of scripture, warring over every political move made in Washington, while the culture around us is changing so rapidly that we can't catch our breath. It is into this environment that you are called to lead and pastor in. Life has changed in the past 15 years. But she goes on to say it's worth the struggle the pain and the sorrow to stay in relationship with Jesus and with one another. Now, I'm sorry I don't have this up on the screen, but it was just drawn for me this morning. Can you all see it? Okay, it's a picture of an apple tree. One of our kids in Kidsmen, Lydia Mel, uh, after, after our class, we sit and we ask the Holy Spirit what he wants to show us. And a few weeks ago, God showed Lydia this. And I said, what is it, Lydia? She redrew it for me this morning because we threw it out, not realizing how many times I was going to talk about it over the next few months. It, it is a picture of an apple tree with other fruits on it, lots of other fruits, a variety of fruits. And then around the tree is a hedge of thorns. And she said there were two groups of people, the pink person is the people who go through the, horn, the thorns to get to the fruit. And they were cut up and bruised, but they knew the fruit on the tree was worth it. And then there's this green group of people who looked at the thorns, looked at the fruit on the tree, and said, not worth it. I'm not going to do it. 
And I said, Lydia, do you know what that means? And she went just like Lydia, not really. <laughs> it was great. So we talked about it. And I cannot tell you how many times God has brought this picture back to me in the past few weeks. What we're being asked to do as Christians today to get the fruit on the tree is going to cost us. And we need each other to keep us connected in love and in truth in both of these things for our survival and for the survival of Christianity. The love and truth of God cannot and will not fail. It has lasted 2,000 plus years, and we can be sure the bride of Christ will be here when he comes back together. But I want to be sure all of us will be here together. At least, maybe not in the same room, because God's brought us into other things that he has for us to do, but together in our hearts, in our minds, that we're willing to walk through the thorns together because the fruit is worth it. And when opposition comes, it's imperative that we love one another fervently with intention. Our mutual love perpetuates the health of the body of Christ. It protects us from deception, helps us multiply life in the truth of the gospel. I can't tell you how many times I've spoken with you guys and said something I was thinking, and you go, well, I, you know, maybe, but, 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 but. And you've kept me in the truth, in the center. And I think we've all done that for each other. Theology professor Robert Yarborough from Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis writes his, he has a commentary on 2 John. He says, just as it takes effort to keep love afresh in a marriage, in a congregation, love must be nurtured and protected. Jesus declared that love among believers is a primary means of their witness to the world. If you love one another, he said, everyone will know you are my disciples. There's keeping power in this kind of love. This love is what keeps us alive and growing. The expression of genuine love is what draws people to Jesus. Why? Because it doesn't exist anywhere else. There's an appearance of it in some cultures, but this kind of love... As we love one another, people will know we are Jesus' disciples. And they must have obeyed John, because 60 years later, church father Tertullian marvels at the difference between the pagan culture and the Christian cultures, and the things the pagans are saying about the Christians. He writes, it's mainly the deeds of love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See how they love one another, they say, for they themselves are animated by mutual hatred how they are ready even to die for one another, they say, for they themselves will sooner be put to death. Sorry, put others to death. Kind of lost my impact there. Sorry. I wonder, is this still the reputation that Christians have in the world today? Is this what your friends say when they think about Christians? Oh, those are the people that love each other so much they would die for each other. Is that who, the, who we are to the world? Perhaps not, but I hope here in our church that this is and remains a predominant characteristics of what visitors have to say about us. And I'll tell you, visitors have said that about us. They really love each other at that church. We're a genuine community that genuinely loves each other. And that brings us great joy, because Jesus said, he tells us this, 
so that our joy may be full. You know, one of my friends recently put it like this. In Christ, brothers and sisters live together to complete each other, not to compete with each other. I thought that was so sweet. And I think we do see a good, see a good deal of that here. But it can break down because we don't always feel it, right? We don't always feel it. And if we nurture that not always feeling it, it can destroy the love that we share for one another. And it's human to not feel like loving somebody today, right? It's human. But Jesus calls us not only to love those we say we love, but to love those who we don't easily love, some people we don't even really like. And then he calls us one step further to love our enemies. It can almost seem impossible. But I found it very helpful this writing that C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, love is not an affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be attained. See, love isn't just a noun, it's also a verb. A steady wish for everything God has for you to be obtained. That's what love is. Everything that God has for each other to be obtained. Now, I want to stress something, that loving God, like, loving like God asks us to, loving each other the way God asks us to, is not something he's expecting us to do on our own. We're not supposed to dig down inside and rage up, I'm going to love you. That's not a very realistic expectation when we're filled with ourselves and stuff. It requires us to be plugged into the source of love himself, Episcopal Church Minister Lorna Goodison puts it like this. I loved this. The commandment to love like Christ, addressed specifically to the disciples, called them to be knit together in genuine, heartfelt, mutual love, but this love did not flow automatically or naturally. To express genuine, heartfelt love, the disciples' eyes had to first be open to the knowledge that Christ's love excels all love, that he loved us first. And we, as we too come to believe, we grow into a new creation with our lives centered on Jesus's redeeming love. Zeal to live and love like Christ flows out of this new life in us. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit propels Christ's new creation, us, on the journey towards loving more. It was the disciples' passionate love among each other and their acts of attitude of love that attracted and successfully spread the good news of Christ's life-transforming love. We need God himself in order to love like God commands. We may not have the natural capacity, but God does, and he's made of love. I want to share a practice with you as I close up here that I've been doing lately. Since I read that good and beautiful God book and I got pricked with that reality that I don't even always love my own friends, I've asked God how I can love more fully and more authentically. And if you know me, you know authenticity is one of my core values. Ben and I talk about this all the time. I love the authenticity and honesty of living openly. I just do. I was made by God to be a lover. I love loving people. I always have. I worked so hard at it as a young kid that I kind of freaked some people out. 
Because not everybody likes to be loved the way I was ready to love everybody. You know, it's a little like, whoa, a little overwhelming. And so, <laughs> you know, as you can imagine, <laughs> thank you, Quee. You and I will always love each other that way. As you can imagine, as a kid, I kind of lived in two worlds. I lived in the world of people really loving that I loved the way I loved, and others who despised me for it. Some of those were in my own family. It was very confusing for a kid. And like every childhood wound, it had an impact on how I saw people as I aged. Could I really trust them to love me and see me as I am? I'm not sure I'm the only person who's gone through this. Can I be who I fully am and be fully loved? As time goes on, we adapt to what life has given to us. You know that old poem, Children Learn What They Live? It's on your grandmother's wall. If children live with criticism, they learn to condemn. If they live with hostility, they learn to fight. If they live with fear, they learn to be apprehensive. It goes on for 20 lines. But the second half of the poem says, if they live with approval, they learn to like themselves. If they live with acceptance, they learn to love. It's a great little poem, and it's full of biblical truths. And um, so when you've lived with stuff as a kid, you learn a certain way to behave. But then we meet Jesus, and he begins to turn us into the person he actually intended for us to be all along. That's pretty cool. But the old stuff battles with the new, and the new life battles with the old, and we're caught in this dichotomy. And we realize that loving one another is not as easy as it seems. So sometimes we just, you know, pull back, make our little self-protection shelters. Or we don't. I don't want to live in a homemade shelter. I don't. I want to become that person God made me to be. And I love loving people. So if I hug you, I promise you, I'm being as authentic as I can. I really mean it. Even if I'm having a bad day. And I, if I can learn to lean into God, to connect to him, and let his love show me how to love like he does, through his eyes, through his heart, through his understanding that he gives to me through the Holy Spirit, then I can do it. And we all can. As I've been teaching the young adults in our small group, plug in and download. We got to plug in and download in order for us to flow in the things of God. Now, I've been practicing this for a few weeks. Anytime I feel my knee-jerk response of criticism or judgment or any of those other negative things that my life caused me to react in, fear, I ask God to show me how he sees that person. And here's the cool thing. He's actually been doing it. So when I look at somebody that I have been afraid of or angry with or irritated by, bam, he shows me, you know, when they were little, Oh, oh, okay. I feel this strange force flowing through me. One of my young adults in my small group has been opening to God more, and he shared with me this impact that it was having. Um, I got a text that said, I almost feel like I have another presence that's helping me be the best I can be for the people around me. I was like, yes, that would be the Holy Spirit. So this is what I've been experiencing too. 
It's been one of the biggest ways he's renewing my mind lately. Letting him have my mind and emotions and watching him show me his love for someone else has enabled me to actually see that person differently and to offer them God's love through my life. It's also helped keep me attached to Jesus because I can't do this without him. And maybe that's what he was expecting of us all along. Maybe that's why he said, without me, you can do nothing. Maybe even just loving each other is something we can't do well without him. I believe learning to love each other well is one of the primary ways the church can be healthy from one generation to the next. And somehow loving each other well has the power to keep the community walking in truth. And God, who is love, and Jesus, who is the truth, will continue to infuse us with everything it takes to obey his command, which is that we walk in love. Now, we're going to practice something here. Yes, you get to do something. Okay, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to come. I'm going to ask him to show you somebody you're having a hard time loving. Somebody's probably already popped up in your head right now. And I'm going to ask us to literally think of all the emotions you have about this person as clutter on your desk. And I want you to do the best we can to just move it out of the way. Just a clean slate. And ask God what he wants to show you about this person. So let's just relax for a minute. Relax. Breathe. Father, I ask that you would do this. And that this would become a practice in us. That when we think something about someone that is unhelpful and unloving, which is part of our sin nature, Lord, that you'd help us to clear it and that you would then show us what you want us to see about that person so we can love them better. It might include forgiveness, acceptance, compassion, hope. Help us to take that risk, Lord. I'm going to give God a minute or so to just minister to us. Come, Holy Spirit, do what you want to do, Tap. Now.